And if you have your Bible, would you please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And in this moment of transition, allow me just to say a few things. I know in our church it's a little unique right now where Pastor Carl preaches for a number of weeks and then I preach for a number of weeks and maybe you show up on a Sunday and you like the surprise and you don't know who's going to be up here. But if you don't like surprises, um, and maybe even this morning if you were surprised to see that the Lord's table was out, it is our, our normal custom to practice on the first Sunday of the month and this is not. Um, we feel like with the subject matter of the sermon, it was appropriate to have the Lord's Supper. But I say all this to say, if you don't like surprises, I really want to encourage you to sign up for our Thursday newsletter. Every week, there's a newsletter, and it has the sermon and who's preaching, and, and it tells you about what's happening in our church. And it's a great way to come to church prepared. And so, in fact, if you like surprises, I would say don't like surprises at church. I want you to come prepared so hopefully we can be reading the passage, praying about it, praying for the preacher that, that given Sunday morning. Um, I know Pastor Carl just prayed, but allow me to pray before we consider God's word. Oh, Father, we thank you that you love us. God, we thank you that you hear us when we pray. And Lord, we thank you that when we come to your word, God, you speak. And so, Lord, I pray that during these few moments, you give us hearts of humility you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we know that your word is living and active. And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, that you'd work within our hearts to make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play for the Major League Baseball. As it is well documented, Robinson's entrance, or you could say his baptism into professional baseball, wasn't without its fierce critics and severe mistreatments. Some 20 years before Martin Luther King Jr. would give his famous I Have a Dream speech, Jackie Robinson in many ways paved a path for many African Americans to venture into full inclusion. Jackie Robinson courageously opened himself up to death threats, to cruel mistreatment, insults, racial discrimination. In fact, the scorn was so great that many of the teammates of Jackie Robinson received threats and taunting for playing baseball with a black man. One of these teammates we know famously as Pee Wee Reese, who one game courageously decided to stand up against the racial discrimination of his fellow teammates. And this is Jackie Robinson who writes in his own memoir, I quote, in Boston, during a period when the heckling pressure seemed unbearable, some of the players and fans began to heckle Reese. They were writing him about being a Southerner and playing ball with a black man. Pee-wee didn't answer them. Without a glance in their direction, he left his position and walked over to me. He put his hand on my shoulder and began talking to me. His words weren't important. I don't even remember what he said. It was the gesture of friendship and support 
that counted. As he stood talking with me with a friendly arm around my shoulder, he was saying loud and clear, yell, heckle, do anything you want. We've come here to play baseball. Stories like this show us how powerful, how meaningful it is when someone goes out of their way and stands with us in solidarity. I think one of the reasons why we like this story, why we have heard it all since childhood, is because it offers a little bit of respite from a world chocked full of divisions. If we're being honest, if we look around in our culture, if we survey history, we see that humans have constantly been divided and that there's always some form of discrimination sewn into the fabric of society. Obviously, with the story of Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese, we see the mistreatment and abuses of racial discrimination. But yet, as we survey life, we, we see that people divide over class. My wife and I really like Downton Abbey. But you see this clear discrimination of the servants eat downstairs and the rich have everything handed to them on a silver tray. You have in history the haves and the have-nots. There's the cultural majority and the cultural minority. You have the educated and the non-educated. You have Republican and Democrat, male, female, the aged, the youth, we can even divide over our stances on social issues with some projecting themselves to be more virtuous than those who take an inferior view to them. The world system naturally divides. You have the powerful, the esteemed, the well-liked, the beautiful, the rich, who get the attention and applause. And yet, when you read the Gospels and you come upon this man named Jesus and you see him sitting with, reclining, identifying with those who aren't the normal ones the world would like to identify with, the leper, the sick, the outcast, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the lame, all felt seen and loved by this rabbi, this teacher, this Jesus. And so in, in a world chock full of divisions, whether they be small or large, what should it look like in communities of Christians, and namely speaking, of, of what do people who call themselves followers of Jesus, when they come together, what do their communities look like? Do they intend to follow the example of their Lord, who seemed to go against the world's normal operating procedures and identify with the outcast? Or, Will they follow the normal patterns that the world follows? This morning we're resuming our study back in 1 Corinthians 
If you're not already there, please turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We have noted in past studies that this Corinthian church that Paul has planted is really and truly a work of God. Paul says that their conversion from, from life to death is evidence of God's grace. They have been enriched in many ways. They have spiritual gifts. They have knowledge. These are true indeed believers. And yet, Paul writes them this letter, and to be honest, it is full of correction. Paul is often astonished at them. And, and it seems to be this, this, this kind of theme throughout Corinthians that these believers still seemed more influenced and more shaped by their Greco-Roman values than, than they are shaped and changed by the message of the cross, by the gospel. And so Paul has to go issue after issue of showing them how the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changes how we should think about church and one another and, and, and a whole host of issues. He begins by, by kind of railing at them about their factions. They're dividing over which preacher is the best preacher they, they tended to tolerate really bad, sinful, overt behavior as if it was fine and shoot it under the rug. Some were saying that sexual fulfillment outside of marriage was fine. If you want to visit a prostitute, it's normal. It's like eating a meal. And some were saying all forms of sexual fulfillment, even within marriage, is wrong as to practice a form of asceticism. They were suing one another. They were insisting on their own rights and freedoms to the detriment of other believers. So there's a lot of issues. And what Paul seems to do in 1 Corinthians is he circles back around again and again to show them how the message of the cross should shape and change our behavior. And so this morning in our passage, and I would say perhaps Outside of 1 Corinthians 13, the passage we're considering this morning is maybe the most well-known passage in this lengthy epistle. Because Paul is recircling back to this idea of unity. He hears stories of, of discrimination, that they are dividing between the haves and the have-nots. Where maybe in chapters 1 through 4, the issue was a little bit more theological, but now they are simply dividing and having factions over sociological concerns. And so let's consider what Paul says now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I believe Paul's main point in this passage and the point of this sermon is this, that what we proclaim, I'm not used to using this, what we proclaim at the Lord's Supper, we must exemplify, we must demonstrate at the Lord's Supper. This is summarize these verses that we just read. This is what Paul is trying to help us to see, the point for us is when we come together and we gather as a church, do we actually reflect and demonstrate what this meal proclaims? What the Corinthian believers were demonstrating was not the Lord's Supper. Through their flagrant favoritism and humiliation of poor members, Paul says that is not what the Lord's Supper represents. What they represented, again, was their Greco-Roman values. So Paul says this is not the Lord's feast. It's your own feast, and it shows. So the question remains for us as maybe American evangelicals, or we can maybe even come a little bit closer in-house as, as Hope Community Church, what do we demonstrate? What do we exemplify when we gather together? See, one thing we need to remember is the Lord knows, he is well aware of the struggle that unity is. The Lord is not unaware of the challenge it is that when you bring Jews and Gentiles, biblical category, or maybe if you bring rich and poor people together, or if you bring the, the right-brained people or the left-brained people, or a group of room full of Republicans and, and Democrats, when you bring together old and young people, what's there bound to be? Well, there's bound to be conflict, divisions. Youth groups have their cliques. Christians have their tribes. There's always going to be this chronic temptation to assimilate with the people who are most like ourselves. So if you have the good fortune to know that golf is the greatest sport, I tend to want to be your friend. So with this temptation, though, that the Lord is keenly aware of, 
The Lord has not left us without help. The Lord has given us his grace. In, in, in the temptations and the divisions that we have, if we are truly the household of God, the household of faith, if we are a family, the Lord, like any family, wants his family to be united where we stand up for one another, where we sacrifice for one another, where we stand in solidarity with one another. And so how does he encourage us to do that as a family, as a body? What has the Lord offered us to, to make sure that his church is not like the world, but that they are unified in love? What he has done is that he has given us a meal. Right here at the Lord's Supper. A meal that not only proclaims, but it actually creates the unity of the body of Christ. See, it's as if, it's as if the Lord knows before anyone else that the family that eats together is the family that stays together. But sadly, what we just read, that these Corinthians, they have flipped this integral design that this meal was supposed to produce. And they have instead demonstrated partisan faction. And Hope Community Church, if we are not careful, we will do the same. And so for our time considering this passage, Paul here is giving us two warnings to help us make sure that we come to this table in a worthy manner. And that is the outline of my sermon. There's two warnings to help us make sure that we demonstrate what we proclaim. So the first warning is in verses 17 through 22, and it's simply this that we tend to forget. I'm giving up on this, by the way. <laughs> Can't say it in try. We tend to forget the guests of the Lord's table. So if you look back down at verse 17, just to kind of maybe refresh our minds here. So Paul says in verse 17, look down at your Bibles, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Right, so this is kind of back to the whole head covering things. He did have some encouragement, but now he's saying, there is no encouragement here whatsoever. Why? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And so we need to really read these section of verses as a very sharp critique. Paul here is really being very severe in his tone. As you can see, even in verse 22, I kind of love that. He's like, what? You know, the expletive right there. And, and Paul here is really trying to show them very forcefully that their behavior is not neutral. In, in fact, I, I think this is a very interesting critique here. He's saying not only is your time together when you come together, is it not helpful it's not even just a waste of time, it's downright harmful. In fact, imagine that someone says to your pastor or to your church, you would be better off if you just stayed home and didn't go at all. I pray that no one ever says that to me, but that is what Paul is saying to them. He's like, you guys shouldn't even meet because of how dysfunctional 
your time is together. And so just a a brief observation here. I, I hope in some ways when you see the language that Paul is using with his tone, and with this time not being helpful, and, and even next week we'll talk a little bit more about how God has brought judgment on these Corinthian believers because of their abuses in the Lord's table. That, that it elevates and it shows just how important this time is. That the Lord's Supper, communion, is not some neutral act, but it has the ability to have good, but it also has the ability to do great harm. And so, so this is why we must think well about what we are doing when we gather together. The Lord's Supper, it is no preacher hyperbole to say, is the most important meal you will ever take in your earthly life. The Lord's Supper stands in the middle of the cosmos that represents the most important message we have, the message of the gospel. It is not something that we can just bring our consumeristic mentalities, the come and go, fast food approach. And so what exactly is Paul upset about? Paul, Paul seems to have this accusation that this meal that they come together to have was, was to be a sign of their integration. It was to be a sign of their unity. But instead, it has become a flashpoint highlighting the inequality and alienation of the church in Corinth. The, these factions or cliques, and, and in fact, that word factions is where we get the word heresy. There's doctrinal heresy. There is you know, sociological heresies. He's, he's kind of saying that you guys have these cliques in the church and it is disrupting everything about what the church is supposed to represent. And, and, and to be honest, we're not exactly sure what it looked like. More than likely, this church met in a home that probably belonged to one of the more wealthier members. It was probably a large home, but maybe not large enough for the whole church to meet in one room We also know that the early church, when they practiced communion, would have the practice of eating an entire meal. So they would maybe bookend this meal, they would begin with the cup, they would eat their meal, and they would end, or excuse me, they would begin with the bread, have their meal, and end with the cup. And more than likely what was happening is the rich would bring a five-star chef and have this huge Thanksgiving meal and have an abundance of food in their own little room, while the poor sat out in maybe the the lobby of the house and they're eating their saltine crackers. And really kind of the idea is that in Greco-Roman culture, the rich and the esteemed and the wealthy, they don't eat, they don't dine with the poor servants. And Paul is saying, that is exactly what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be both the rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, dining together. And so maybe the best illustration I can think of is if you've been on an airplane recently and maybe it's a a longer flight. Southwest doesn't have first class, you know, Southwest, Greyhound of the skies, right? But almost any other American airline, when you walk into the plane, who's the the people in the front? It's the first class. They get to board first, and normally, you, you, you walk into first class, 
and they don't make eye contact with you. You're not worthy to be looked upon. They're, they're drinking their champagne. They already have this nice little snack. They get, you know, a nice little towel. And, you know, it's like, just move past, you know, get, get to your seat. And, you know, I love the, the airlines where they close the curtain. Like, we're not even worthy to look at them. <laughs> Can't share the same air. And, you know, they give me, like, a bag of pretzels. And, you know, I ask for a Diet Coke. And they don't give me the whole can. They, like, fill it up. And they keep, like, the two tenths left in the can. All of that might be fine in the airline industry. Just saying. Capitalism, right? But in the church, Paul says it is wicked and evil. And you actually show great disdain, disgrace for the Lord's church. And so Paul here wants them to know that this type of discrimination towards the poor, which only feeds arrogance, it nourishes bitterness, it's not a waste of time. It is downright harmful. Divisions in the body of Christ nullify the very purpose of gathering in the name of Christ. It contradicts what the Lord's Supper proclaims, the the church's foundation. And, And what does it proclaim? What is the church's foundation? Christ's sacrificial giving of his life for others. And so in verse 19, if you look down on your Bibles, he says, for there must be factions, kind of interesting, among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, there's a little bit of debate here as to what Paul means. Some kind of debate think that that Paul is saying God has intended for there to be divisions in the church in order to show who the true Christians are and who the unbelievers are. That time will always show itself to reveal who actually has a true profession of Christ And who doesn't? See, a good tree always bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. It's always going to be seen. But others don't necessarily think that he's talking about who's a true Christian and who isn't. One commentator would say it like this. The divisions at the Corinthian Lord's Supper do not reveal who the tried and true Christians are. Instead, they reveal a church that has failed to take to heart the message of the cross. I think in verse 19, Paul here, he's using some irony. He's saying, actually, you're right. There are some divisions at the Lord's table. But it's not the divisions that you have. The divisions you have are about the social superiors and about the inferiors. But make no mistake, there is a division happening at the Lord's Supper, and it's the only division that matters. It's the division between those who understand the gospel and those who do not. This meal is intended to portray that everybody who partakes is eternally precious to God. I know I keep using the word meal and it feels more like a snack because it's a tiny piece of bread and it's a little thing of juice, and a lot of commentaries talk about how this person who had excess was getting drunk, which means that they clearly used wine, not juice. We can debate that another time. But even in this little sampling, 
It's designed to show you that you matter to God. And if you matter to God, you must matter to me. So what does this section have to do with us? I admit we don't practice the Lord's table a lot like the ancient Corinthian believers. We don't meet in a home. Um, we don't have different meals going on where the rich and the poor. But I think there's a lot of principles here that, that are helpful for us to consider. If we come to church week in and week out, but never intend to invest in meaningful relationships, if we never intend to commit to each other, to serve one another, we may be just as guilty as the Corinthians. No, our problems won't look exactly the same, but there are myriad of ways in which we, as modern Americans, are tempted to undermine Christian unity. We may say that we are all for Christian community, that we love Christian fellowship, However, if we keep a short list of people who we would never invite in our homes or show hospitality to, we undermine Christian unity. We, we may like the idea of being part of a small group or a home group, but only if they're like me. Don't put me in a group bunch of kids, they're loud and they distract us. At times, I think we can undermine Christian unity by avoiding certain people because of things they may have said or done to us in the past that, that hurt us. And instead of forgiving them and reconciling, we'll talk about this more next week, we keep people at a shoulder length. For others in this room, we, we struggle with this because we somehow think that following Jesus is only a private matter. It's just me and God. We come up, we take our little piece of bread, we wash it down with some juice, but we fail to remember that this meal is designed to strengthen the bond of each other, not to further push individualism and isolation. I don't mean to say that as a church, we don't do a good job in some of these ways. In fact, writing this sermon, reflecting on this point, I'm encouraged to see the Lord's grace in our church as I see coming out of this pandemic more and more connection during the moments before the service. I'm always encouraged to see people stay afterwards, talking, making relationships. I'm encouraged by the increased attendance at our quarterly members' meetings, the informal stories I hear of one another caring for members when someone has a baby, when someone experiences the loss of a loved one, examples of Christian friendship, people getting together to pray, to even go on, to watch our church grow in how we can support and care for families and individuals affected by disability, to see a zeal for missions so that others in Olympia and around the world may know the gospel's good news. All of these friends, praise God for, in which there are real tangible ways in which we can see God's grace in these areas. 
Yet at the same time, I think we always need to be asking ourselves, what do some of the people in our church who are maybe part of a, of my, of a minority group, how do they feel? You know, again, like I said earlier, every culture, every organization is going to have some type of a cultural majority or a cultural minority. If, if most of the people in this room are married, how do the single people feel loved and cared for? Do they feel like they have true friends and a family to rely on? How about those with little kids? The aged those in our congregation who have different cultural backgrounds from us, maybe they're from different countries, maybe their English isn't as good. How about the visitor, the newcomer? Do these people feel the ministry of Christ, the unity of the body? You see, the problem with the Corinthian believers is they had forgot. They were forgetting that everyone in their congregation were honored and royal guests of God at the supper. That all of those who are in Christ are very precious to God. If I walked in on a conversation and you were saying bad things about my wife, that would be very hard for me I would really view that as an offense. How does our Heavenly Father feel when we slander our brother or sister? Or we ignore them? Or we just more or less pretend like they're not there? See, when you look around this room, you may see a group of ordinary people, dare I say unremarkable, certainly an unremarkable preacher. But that's not true. These people around you are divinely called and appointed royal sons and daughters with immense and eternal value. The price tag of their clothes, the culmination of their net worth are irrelevant when you've read the price tag of their lives, that they are bought with the blood of Christ. So don't forget who you are. And certainly don't forget who the people sitting next to you are. Those who have been bought, God's chosen and holy possessions. So not only should we not forget the guests of the Lord's table, the second warning is we must not forget the message of the Lord's table. And this is my second point. And so like I mentioned in my introduction, Outside of 1 Corinthians 13, which is read in a number of weddings, this little section here in verses 23 through 26 is probably one of the more well-known passages that Christians know because most churches read these verses when they celebrate and practice the Lord's, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper. So do me a favor, look down at your Bible in verse 23. Paul begins this section with a little bit of a wordplay. And I think it's a helpful observation. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered. Now that word delivered, I'm reading from the ESV, is the idea of I handed over. 
Paul handed over the tradition. And what did he hand over? That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Again, the idea there is Jesus was handed over. So Paul hands over the teaching that Jesus was handed over. And that's an important observation because we tend to read that the night he was betrayed simply as a temporal you know, event, the night when Jesus betrayed him. But I think he's actually saying a little bit more. It wasn't just Judas who handed him over. It was the chief priests. It was the council. It was the crowds. It was Herod. It was Pontius Pilate. But ultimately, it was the father who handed over Jesus. And what was Jesus handed over to? He was handed over to death in order that he may die for our sins and win our salvation. Paul is saying that when I came to Corinth, I, I handed over to you the meaning of this death and the meal in which we remember that death. And so it's pretty interesting in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses a number of terms and phrases to describe this little meal that we practice. In chapter 10, he uses this word koinonia, Right? We have fellowship with one another. We literally have, so we get the word communion. So one way we can refer to this meal is communion. We have koinonia. We have fellowship with one another. If you look in verse 24, he'll say, and when he had given thanks, that's a unique word, but it's the word Eucharist. And maybe you've heard that in other Christian traditions. Simply Eucharist means giving thanks, right? In verse 20, a few verses ago, he mentions it's the Lord's banquet or the Lord's supper. In verse 24, he'll mention breaking bread. And so different Christian traditions seem to emphasize two or three of those four different terms. Just briefly, small point. If the Apostle Paul is fine with using all of those terms to describe the same thing, we shouldn't be suspicious when a Christian uses a term like Eucharist or communion here at Hope, we tend to refer to this as communion or the Lord's table. And so ultimately, Paul goes on to say, recounting the words of this institution, that, that Jesus died on behalf of others. So the words of this institution, if you look, my translation has it in red, this is my body which is for you. See, again, in the context of this racial discrimination, do you see how helpful reminding them of these words are? It is to shape them. It is to help them to actually demonstrate when you remember that Christ became poor to make you rich, when you remember that Christ gave up his life sacrificially for you, that ought to change how you treat others. You see, he reminds them again that, that Jesus died so you also can be sacrificial. He goes on to say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The salvation celebrated in this meal comes at the price of Jesus' blood. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that covenants come through the shedding of blood. But Jesus' sacrifice replaces the ineffective blood of bulls and goats. It is by God's will that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so, so Paul is doing something very interesting here. Right in the context of scolding them for their discrimination, he reminds them 
of what is proclaimed here. And really what he's doing, he's setting up a contrast. Say, look at your life, Corinthians, and look what Christ did. The, The Corinthians act selfishly. Jesus acts unselfishly in giving his life for others. The Corinthians' actions, and we'll see this more next week in our passage, will lead to their condemnation and judgment. Jesus' action leads to the salvation of others. So Paul is saying, each believer here gets an equal share of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. And that reality should be symbolized during the Lord's Supper. Which is why maybe it is helpful that every little piece of bread is about the same size. We each get an equal share of Christ's sacrifice. Now, one thing that Paul doesn't do in this passage that I think a lot of theologians wish he did is describe the meaning of what, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? What does Jesus mean by that? Should we hear those words as, as Jesus saying, this is my literal body, my flesh, that you are drinking the literal blood? Now, some Catholics, that's what they believe, transubstantiation. And, you know, it's very interesting. Early Christians were actually labeled as being cannibals because they would, pagans would hear this language that they eat the flesh of Jesus and they drink his blood. I mean, that sounds very cannibal-like. But if not that, does, does Jesus says, this is my body, does it mean that his presence is in these elements where he's in and within and under and over the, the way that maybe water fills a sponge but does it become the sponge? Is, is that what it means, this is my body? Maybe a Lutheran way of understanding this. Or are these words that we read here and every week we, or every month we read them, is it simply just a memorial where nothing's spiritual or mystical, there's no hocus pocus here, or simply calling to mind what Christ has done for us to inspire us to continue to live a life like Christ? Or maybe the view that I take that I think it's best to understand Jesus' words here to be that when Christ's people take these elements by faith, Christ is truly spiritually present with us to nurture our faith and to strengthen our resolve to believe the gospel. So theologians have been talking about that for a very long time, and they will continue to talk about that for a long time. I I really put that last point in there for all of you, the four of you who wanted to hear that. Um, But that's not what Paul really is getting at, okay? What Paul is trying to get at in reciting the words of the institution here is that we are to imitate Christ's example of self-giving. Everything they do in their meal should accord with Christ's self-sacrifice for others. What they should have been doing is preparing themselves to give themselves and their resources for others. One church father, Christendom, says this, he, Christ, gave his body equally, but you do not give so much as the common bread equally. And so to summarize these verses, what Paul is saying is the Lord's table, when we come to this table, there's this immense beauty 
It is maybe kind of like a diamond where you can look at this table and this meal from different components and different views. And so first, Paul says, when we come to the Lord's table, what you should first do is look up to God in thanksgiving, right? And when he had given thanks. Thankfulness and gratitude is one of the chief and primary marks of a Christian. That we who are dead spiritually, object of God's wrath, those who are lost in sin, but God has saved us. We are to be those who are radically thankful. Elsewhere, Paul would say in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule or, or be the ruling principle in all of y'all's hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. And here's what he says, and be thankful. Now, is that command to be thankful a lot like when your mom, when you're a kid, you get a present from your aunt that you don't really want and you don't really have the right you know, reaction, she says, you better be thankful. No, it's not like that. He goes on in Colossians 3 to say, let, let the word of Christ, or the word about Christ, let the gospel dwell in your hearts, all of your hearts richly, that you're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? with thankfulness in your hearts to God. A sure, a sure mark of someone who has forgotten the gospel is a thankless spirit. And so in the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate, we first, we are immensely thankful people. Secondly, Paul says that we are to not just look up to God in Thanksgiving, we are to look back in remembrance of what Jesus has done, right? There it is, verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. You know, as, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Simply put, we are to remember the gospel. We are to remember that Jesus willingly came into this world, that his life, his death, his resurrection, there is no greater example or picture of love, humility, of charity, of generosity. We are to remember that we don't deserve to be at this supper but yet we have been graciously invited. We have been forgiven for those who have put their faith in Christ and turned from their sins in repentance. We have been given an inheritance. We, we remember that when we come to this table. We look back. And if I may add, this, this type of remembrance is not simply a calling to mind. It's a totality of our lives. If we can remember that Christ has sacrificed everything for me, but I'm unwilling to sacrifice for you. Have I really remembered? So remembering doesn't just mean thinking. It means living in such a way that I remember if Christ has sacrificed for me, I ought to do the same for you. We look up, we look back. Paul even says that when we come to this table, we're acting prophetically of sorts, right? We are to look forward to the soon-to-come day of the Lord. In verse 26, he says, 
As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper and baptism, I would say, are these mini dramas. They're, they're these plays, these ways in which we can tangibly see the gospel with our eyes. We can taste it with our mouths. We can hear it when we chew. We can touch it with our hands. And Paul's saying, this meal, which again, at the center of everything in which Christ is culminating to, is to be proclaimed until this final day in which the kingdom of God comes and is fully here and fully realized. Fourth, to maybe to go a little bit beyond the scope of our passage that we're considering more next week, not only do we look up, not only do we look back, not only do we look forward, we look within. Paul says, if you look at your Bibles in verse 28, let a person examine himself. That we begin to ask, are there people here who I am holding grudges with? Are there people here who I need to apologize to? Are there ways in me that I have not lived like Christ in giving his life for others? I need to confess that. I need to repent. Sometimes I think when we hear this idea of examining, and again, we'll talk more about this next week, I think we tend to think purely between us and God. But Paul here, if you, again, if you look down on verse 20, 28, let a person examine himself and so, so eat the bread and drink the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Right? Sometimes... At our members meeting, we read that covenant, that membership covenant. Like, that's a good thing maybe to read before you come to the Lord's table, to ask yourself, am I doing this? But lastly, Paul says, we are to look around. Right? We look up to God in thanksgiving. We look back to remember Christ. We look forward prophetically, looking forward to that day. We look within ourselves. But I don't close my eyes. I open them and I look at all of you and I see the body and it may not be the people that I would pick. It may not even be the people that you want to be here. But nonetheless, these are the people that God has put in my church and I am to love them. You know, one of the reasons why this morning we're passing the elements is we get this really good tangible way to remember that as someone passes me the plate, I am being served by the body of Christ. And as I pass the plate to them, I'm serving them the body of Christ. Now, I'll be honest, it's much more effective and time efficient for you to come up forward and get your elements, and selfishly, I may want it that way, but I think there's something really tangible to remind us of when we pass. And so as you see, this Lord's Supper, and I could say much more, is this multifaceted diamond that, that shouldn't be done in some reductionistic way. Sometimes I think we just read this passage and it's just kind of the, the tradition, Right? But it's a meal 
that should profoundly shape us. It should change us. We should reflect, we should demonstrate, we should exemplify what is proclaimed here. So we need to look up, look back, look forward, look within, look around, so we may be shaped by the gospel and be the people who exemplify the gracious and sacrificial love of Christ. What we proclaim at the Lord's Supper, we must demonstrate at the Lord's Supper. Because if we don't, it's not the Lord's Supper that we're taking. We're taking our own meal. And so Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese is a very inspiring story. It's such a good story, I think they should make a movie about it. It's a story that I hope brings unity and healing for ages and centuries to come. But it's so good of a story simply because it reminds us of Christ. It reminds us of Jesus standing in solidarity with those who are outcast. The woman caught in adultery felt his grace. Tax collectors and sinners felt welcomed by him. Jesus, at a great cost to himself, so identifies with us that he not only becomes a man, but he goes to the cross and he dies to be our substitute. Jesus, in the greatest act of solidarity, doesn't just stand with others. Friend, he stands with you. He is proud to call you brother. He is proud to call you sister. To, to those who have put their faith in Christ and turned from their sins, we don't just hear a story about how Jesus was a really nice person for others. No, what we read is that Jesus broke his body for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves me, Aaron. He loves you. He was raised for our justification. He now sits at God's right-hand throne where he ever lives and pleads for us. He's our great high priest. And this is what we remember at this beautiful table, this meal that God has given us to help nourish our faith, to help exemplify to a world chock full of divisions that those who are in Christ, we are all for one, one for all. And so may we endeavor as a church not to just proclaim this story, but may by God's grace we demonstrate it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, oh Father, God, we will fall short to try to give you the praise that you are due. Lord, we thank you for the great, great gift of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray 
God, that your spirit would help us to not be people who are simply hearers of the word, but Lord, help us to be doers of the word. Lord, at times I know it can be awkward, scary, not fun to approach people who are not like us. At times, at a great cost to ourselves, Lord, we don't want to forgive others. We want to hold up the walls of bitterness. But Lord, I pray that when we come to this table in a moment, that you would help us to remember what Christ has done for us that we would personally, again, remember how Christ became poor to make us rich. That he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so, Lord, nourish our faith. Prepare us for heaven. Give us faith and insight. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.